It's a horrible place. It's a, the best city in the world with the worst scene. <laughs> it's unfortunate. And the, some of the biggest bullies are here and people really glorify them and I have to watch it and just shake my head. But there's nothing I can do about it. That's part of the power dynamics of these industries. People are hungry, people are desperate, people are doing things for the wrong reasons. There's a few that are doing it for the right reasons, whatever, however you want to think of that. But unfortunately, that is the behavior in this industry. If they don't like that you are doing better work than they are, they will do whatever they can to interfere with it and create chaos so that you can't focus. And by losing that focus, you lose quality in your work, you lose time to cultivate your practice. And that's my life. And my cultivation of my practice matters as much as my need for financial stability to eat because I matter and I have a right to be here and exist. And it really hurts that they all created such dangerous environments where if I'm not serving the one purpose that they see me for, which is demographic numbers, then I'm not valuable to them because I'm not human, I'm an object. And that was really when the Black Lives Matter movement made so much sense to me. Because my life matters, my career matters, the fact that I'm part of history matters. The fact that you don't want people to talk about it also matters because that's what white supremacy looks like. That's the covertness of it. And it's like, goes right back to it. And I'm like, ah, okay, here we go. I can't be on the record saying anything. What's that sound? Hey. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? The proposition sounds intriguing. The proposition sounds very attractive. I tell you it's a thoroughly sound proposition. Seems a sound proposition. What brought you here? Sound is the protagonist. My name is Maria Chavez. I'm a sound artist, abstract turntablist, and DJ based in New York, originally from Lima. It's sound for me more so than for music, especially because a lot of the, if we're talking exclusively of the turntablism practice itself, a lot of those records that I use uh, were not meant for music purpose. They were meant for Foley purposes or test tone, 
tones for um, the phonograph repairmen to fix their the turntables of a hi-fi system in someone's home. They're not there's no like music intentionality in a lot of the work that I play back with in that particular side of the practice. I don't see music and sound as the same thing. I see, that's why I call myself a sound artist. I'm not a, a musician. I never went to music school. I learned the piano at nine, but I didn't learn the piano because I wanted to be a piano player. I learned the piano that year because I wanted to learn how to play Beethoven's for Elise. I wanted to be able to play it all the way through the two pages, all the way through without messing up. And once I was able to do that, I quit. And my piano teacher was like, but you, you we're just stars like no i never wanted to learn this instrument i just wanted to see if i could do this song and now i did it so i'm done and she was like uh, and my mom was like uh. <laughs> and it's it's i've always had like a separation of understanding of of music versus sound once you start to think of it in a musical sense of music school then the work doesn't make any sense which for me, I understand that, but it's not musical. And so that's why I'm, I'm, I always have to talk to the music kids and be like, this isn't music, this is simply an act. It's a response, it's a call and response. It's a seance, <laughs> it's, it's working with physics. It's not anything to do with the, the final piece is not really meant to be enjoyed in the way that music is organized for um, whatever purposes those tracks are made for, whether it's for entertainment or for communication purposes. Um, so yeah, I, I just think it's really key for people to understand that I'm not trying to make any of these statements under any musicality basis because there's so much history to it that I have absolutely no relationship to or even am aware of. Ultimately, it's not my goal to be a professional musician. You know, I'm, I'm just an artist. That's why, um, did you hear that album I came out with last year with, with Jordi Wheeler through Cafe Auto's label? It's on, um, it's on uh, the Takaroku Cafe, Cafe Auto's um, website, Jordi Wheeler. Uh, we went to the kitchen during the pandemic quarantine and um, we, we had a duo since 2015. He was like the last person I played with as a duo um, before my brain surgery and then we didn't see each other for I mean we, we saw each other during my recovery but not for performance purposes to, just to see each other and so the kitchen sessions is the first time we were actually able to sit down and play together again 
after about a year and a half of uh, not playing together. And I wanted to try out a new um, setup, my four turntables with my eight needles setup. And I was like, Jordy, we should just test it out and see how it goes. Because he's multi-instrumentalist too. He does piano, guitar, upright bass, and percussion. And sometimes he'll play the violin. And he's one of those musicians where you give him an instrument and by the end of the hour, he's like so proficient in it. It makes you frustrated and angry. And so I choose to work with him because of his musicianship. And so he brings something to my work that I could never be able to provide because I don't have that musicianship in me. Whereas I think he was like some kind of a savant, like as a child, like piano savant and stuff, and has just been a really proficient and strong um, musician. And so if you listen to that album versus say, what I played with Lucas um, at that Ratskin release. Um, that's a completely different relationship because Lucas and I came up together. We started together. We were in the same Pauline Oliveros deep listening group. He was 18, I was 21. Um, and we were part of a group with Sandy Ewan and a few other people in Houston um, and worked with Pauline directly for like five years. We met up three to four times a week to either perform or to practice Pauline's tech deep listening techniques. Like we were so in it for years. And so my relationship with performing when it comes to Lucas is deeply, deeply based on Pauline's approach to improvisation. So while he's also a musician and has this musicianship, his background as a young artist was still within this conceptual realm of Pauline's deep listening practices. So then we have that in common when we choose our placement and our pacing within space in an improvised setting. And so when you listen to that, what you're hearing is, well, the funny story. The reason why I let him release it was, um, it was my last show in LA before my brain surgery. I knew I was not gonna be back for like five years or something. And so I was like, let's play while, while we're out there. Okay, um, super nice venue, have our sound check, everything sounds fine. Have a really important like TV director there, you know, LA, they always like so cheesy like that. And we get to the stage to start to play. And then Lucas looks at me and he said, where are our monitors? Because this was like a setup, like a full stage setup with the PA out there. And then we have our monitors here and there's a disparate difference. Like you can't really hear anything at all. <laughs> and I just looked at him and we were already making sounds. So people thought that we were playing already. And I looked at him and I was like, oh my God, they never set up our monitors, did they? And we forgot to ask. And I was like, I just assumed we were listening through them at sound. I, I just didn't think about it. And and he's like, do you want to stop? And I was just like, well, uh, no, like the guys out there, like, I was like, let's, let's do this. And he's like, all right. And we just like get into it. We don't know what we're doing. We can't hear anything we're doing, let alone what each other are doing. All we know is just our actions because we perform together. I performed with him and he, has his bass and his guitars and with his pedal steel. So, and this was with his pedal steel. So I knew his movements and I knew, I remembered like when he does this, I know he's probably gonna make this kind of sound and things like that. Cause 
when you work with someone for so long, you just, you get that innate periphery motions and like what's going to be emitted from them, from their act. And so I was heavily relying on that <laughs> for the entire performance. Couldn't hear a thing. And then a few months later, Lucas wrote me, he's like, Maria, please let me release this. And I was just like, is it that good? He's like, it's amazing. And I was just like, let me hear it first. And then I'll, I'll, I'll see it. And then I hear it and I just started laughing so hard. I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty great. This is like, Pauline would be so proud of us right now <laughs> for our placement. We, you know, there's a lot of space. It's very thoughtful, but there's also moments where it's very dense, but it's not dense in, in this like noisy free jazz way. We, and it's like that with Sandy too. Like we just have a, a sense of nuance in space and time that Pauline instilled in us very early in all of our practices. I mean, we were all developing at the same time. So when you hear that versus my performing with Jordy at the kitchen, there's a huge difference of how I play. Also, my instrumentation is completely different and the circumstances are different. Jordy and I could hear each other the whole time, whereas Lucas and I couldn't, but we've been playing together for ages and understood each other and had this instinct, you know,
And so every relationship is based on a history and I choose the collaborators based on what I feel either my practice is in need of or if it's something that I feel is beneficial for everyone. With Jordi, I really wanted a documentation in time of my own self playing in a venue again, even though it's not like in the old way, um, with someone I trusted who I knew uh, would fulfill this kind of sound proficiency that is expected of the kitchen when there's a musician in there. Um, and that piece is, I, I, I just kind of liken it to like, it's the most Morton Feldman, Feldman-y thing of my catalog, which is very small because I don't, I didn't release things until the brain surgery. So, um, and I'm really proud of that because I don't know of any other musician that I would have trusted enough to play with where I would have felt free enough to sound or to accompany my sounds with a sound like that. But because he has that musicianship, it sounds like this classical improvisation. And it's very different from, from Lucas's. Like that's a little bit of a different format. And then when Sandy and I have our release with Orb Tapes, either later, I think it's later this year, um, You'll, you'll hear a different relationship with that, even though my instrumentation is the same and my emissions are the same, um, whether it's four or one, it's still electroacoustic farts and things, you know. Um, it, it, it will always evolve with the person because I'm not restricted within this musical language. And then I'm making a lathe right now with Devin Kenny, who's an artist, also makes music, but is mainly a visual artist, a conceptual artist. He had a solo show at PS1 last year. Really, really um, fantastic. He's out in Berlin now for a residency and just very bright, black, sensitive. And like, he, he's, just, he's just making fun of the world in a way through social media that I, I really respect and admire because I came out, I'm older, you know, I'm 41. Like I, I, came, I, I came into this during a time of great abuse in the scene for women where you couldn't have any confidence and you couldn't make any space for yourself. And if you did, you were in trouble. And so to see kids coming into the scene that are like five years younger than me, they have so much confidence. And it's shocking because I'm like, where did people allow you? <laughs> like everything I did was, a sacrifice, like where no one gave me any boat of confidence outside of my tiny Pauline circle, you know, like, and here you are just walking the world with all the support everywhere and everyone's encouraging all of your rebelliousness. It's like, I was born a little too early, I think, or something, but he, because he was born within that time frame, he has this freedom that I don't. And so I wanted to work with him to get to know that freedom a little bit more and to interact with it more so that it can influence me a little bit more because I'm just now starting to get into a phase of confidence that I, I never had in my entire life. And so it's, it, it's been a part of a, a development process. So I felt like working with him during this recovery time, that duo would sound 
interesting because he's introducing me to his idea of freedom. And I have an idea of freedom, but it's with this underlying fear that someone's going to hurt me because I'm acting too free, where he's just free. And there is no, there, there's no fear shadowing it. And so that will be, we, he's an MC. So he, he did a, like a rap and I created a background with my turntables, like a kind of droney, electroacoustic thing. And um, we're cutting it on a lathe. And then we're going to put perforations on it so that people can rip it apart. And then it can be different shapes, how you, how you rip it apart. And so then, and even the perforations, if you never rip it apart, is already interacting with what we recorded. So it's not even going to sound like anything that we did. And so there's no musicality in that outside of his poetry, which could be seen as, you know, a branch off of music. Um, and then the way that we're physically interacting with it, it's, it's an art piece, it's sculpture. So that's why I'm willing to work with him because I know that if I work with him, we're gonna make a piece. It's gonna be a real art piece. Whereas if I work with Jordy, it's gonna be a recording, it's gonna be performance music setting. That's what he expects. That's what I respect him for. So that's the environment that I provide that work for. It's going to be with Lucas. It's going to be whatever he wants. It might be a show where we can't hear each other or an installation or, you know, whatever. And then same with Sandy, you know, like. So it's just an adaptable practice because there was nothing really behind it that was restrictive when the practice started outside of like the guidance of Pauline's thought processes. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really important that people see the difference of how, how I'm, I'm able to step away from music because then I think it helps them make sense of the work even more. And I think people can appreciate it more once they're able. If you're a musician and you finally give yourself space to step away from that space, that's also a really freeing place to be. And that act in itself, not even listening to my work, that, that means the work is already working. It's not even about what I'm doing. It's about instigating a situation to either pull you away or pull you in. And it, so that it doesn't matter if my work is good or bad. It, it, that's not what it's for. And that's why it's not music or it, it's, it, it, in the framework of art, it's conceptual. But the medium that I focus on is sonic. recently you've expanded again out to I think you said four yeah I'm finally doing what the boys have been begging me to do <laughs> the entirety of my career but I needed something that made me want to do it you know and that was the double needles 
because I love my double needles. And so it's like, well, and then the inventor made me three more, actually made me five more. And, and one, which is a stacker, one of its, that it doesn't exist anywhere, but I invented it. That's my needle. I'm so proud of it. I can't wait to really go off on that when it's time to tour again in 2023. They connect to different channels? Yeah, so it's it can be divided like one needle goes to one channel, the other needle goes to the other. So for a four-turn table setup, I need um, two DJ mixers. Yeah, so that's two, so, so two faders per turntable so that I have, and then I have eight voices to work with. And then I can choose how I want it if I want them at the same time or separately. And then this, yeah, and then the stacker that I that I invented with Randall, um, the inventor of the double-headed needle, um, I asked him to space it so that the, uh, somewhere over here, um, one needle is slightly higher than the other, so I can play a 12-inch and a 10-inch or a 7-inch at the same time. And so now I, now I have a double needle that can play two different sizes of records at the same time on top of the double-headed needles that just play flat, two parts of a record. So the next one I really want to make is one that can go backwards because right now they, they're too chunky, they're too gordita. They they're, they're, can't go backwards, they get stuck with the shards. Like, so there needs to be a little sleigh, like a little thing so that it kind of glides up and um, so that's, but that's like some engineering that is far beyond my, my capabilities. So, um, but yeah, that, that one, I, I want to develop about two or three more um, and maybe have a museum show just showing them off. And, and then I want to make them accessible to the public. I want to be able to make a few of them where we sell them and then people can have them. But then it's kind of annoying because then I have to add a new section to my book, which is now abstract turntables and techniques for two needles for a stacker, for a needle that goes backwards and whichever other ones I, I designed with Randall. So it's like, it's a pain in the ass when you really think about it, but it's exciting too. And so when I got the double needle, I was like, all right, now I want to hear a lot of it. And how do I hear a lot of it? Well, you got to have a lot of turntables. And so I have four of the same turntables here, uh, Newmark TTX series, they go backwards, uh, 50% above and below uh, 33 RPM and 45. It goes up to 78 and does backwards on 78 as well. And it has a quartz lock that's really janky, um, which is why I guess they uh, discontinued it. It's like a key lock quartz lock. And if you push it, it keeps the tone of the record as you change the BPM. Uh, but if you do it a little too fast or you like hit a certain BPM, it starts to get really glitchy and crunchy and like, and it gets very, um, it's, 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 it's like you're digitally messing with the sound on a computer, but it's in your hands. It's, it's giving a digital element to the vinyl. Um, and so I, I only li like to work with those. And um, that was when I was like, well, if I could have four of those, and for these, I think shit could get wild. And, and then I was like, well, who do I want to figure that out with? I was like, I'll, I'll talk to Jordy. And he's like, hell yeah. <laughs> and so that's the album. It's, but I think that one with the four needles and turntables is very elegant. You don't expect that from four needles and or eight needles and four turntables. Like when I heard it, I, I was like, you can't even tell, you know. 
Um, I think that's one of like the the difficult sides of my work. Like I'm not so overtly showmany. So if you can't tell and you don't know, then you don't know. So it doesn't seem impressive until you know. So then you miss out. <laughs> it's like I have I have fans that come at me like and they're they're like showing me something that I did from like 10 years ago. They're like I didn't know it was like that. And I'm like I thought it was pretty clear about that, but maybe over time like information just doesn't trans I don't know. And like, but now that I know that this was the detail of that that work changed my life and I was just like oh, wow, great. I'm glad like it's just really frustrating that it took you that long to find that information about that key information that made this work so important. Um, or why why I made it. Um, so yeah, it, when I first started though, it was recital style, one turntable, one needle, um, and a basic DJ mixer with three EQs. And I chose that because I came from DJ culture and realized that walking into Pauline's world was I was I, I was given the space to to redefine it for myself. And I already had the experience because I've been performing in front of people since I was 17 and I'm 41 now. So it's a really long in-person performance career. And um, but when you're a 17 year old kid and you look like me in Houston and you're DJing like drum and bass and techno and you're a teenager, you're already confronted with so many discriminative factors of like oh you don't look like a dj oh this or you know like all about appearance and things i think when i first dj'd for the public um at 16 17 um the most famous female dj was a russian topless dj um and so it that that was the environment that i and how that houston was even worse i mean I love DJ's groove, but that whole community is very misogynistic. But rest in peace. Um, but I decided, like early on, when it when I got into this world, I was like, okay, so now I can finally challenge it without well, not without, but like, and I have some people behind me because before I was so alone. I had like a boyfriend, but like, you know, none of the guys gave me any like. Anytime I did one, one train wreck, because it was all vinyl back then too. No, no computers, no Serato, no CDJs, nothing. Um, so I beat match by ear. I still do to this day. I don't use any programs because it's once it's in. It's like riding a bike. Once it's in you, you can't let it go. Um, but they would be waiting for my train wreck so that they could be like, "See, she can't do it. I told you she can't do it." Let me take her spot. She's gonna just mess up. And then they would kick me off so that they could jump on. And so there's this like constant hounding of my presence. And finally, I'm in this new space where there's not hounding directly around me. 
So then I, I'm like, well, I know that I don't look the part. And now that I'm in this art world, I know I don't look the part. And so I was like, what is the opposite of a DJ? And I was like, well, it's one turntable playing and it's sitting. It's recital style. Because already when I walk out, that's already like, who is that? That doesn't look right. And then she sits down at a turntable where there isn't two. And that also like messes with your head. And then I start and then you're completely engrossed. And so that is part of the performance. And I learned that very early on that just my walking onto the stage was an act in itself, not just politically, but artistically. Um, and so I, and I realized too, I started off with two turntables because I, I thought that that's just what you did. How do you, you have to fill space with sound. If you have silence, you, you messed up, you know? But as I started working with Colleen, I realized how valuable silence was and how powerful I was with my equipment because it was electricity. And yet I'm improvising with violin players and acoustic players. And as soon as I push power off, it sucks all the sound out of the room, you know. And Colleen was really clear about that. She's like, you have a lot of power. And I was just like, right, right, I have power. I definitely don't think I'm making choices. I'm controlling mechanics. And that's not artistic. So in order for me to not have to control so much, I need to remove one. But if I remove one, what about the spaces in between? Well, then you have to work with the mixer's internal uh, issues that it has, the glitchiness and the noise and everything within that. And you have to become comfortable in silence and accept it as part of part of the compositional approach. Okay. Wow. That sucks. But let's try it. We did it in front of people and it was perfect. And I was like, ah, this is what artistic development is. And then I was like, okay, so this is what this is going to be from now on. I know that it looks crazy. People are in, and I was able to make really cool choices and focus on one thing. And so that was my setup for many, many years until until my brain surgery. I mean, I, I had other turntables involved, and sometimes, like, if I was in a city where they didn't have the right equipment, they would just throw me random turntables, and then I would just play all of them because it, w- it wasn't going to be my performance anyway because it wasn't the right turntable anyway, so... What might as well just make it into a performance piece rather than a specific turntablism thing. Um, so yeah, I, I've definitely cultivated the one recital turntable side of it. And I think I got comfortable enough with it when it was time, when I got the double needles and I really started to think about the processes of the different variations the turntables that I have because just because the turntables are all the same make and model doesn't mean they're of the same quality and condition they all have their own unique glitches too just like the needles do 
which gives even more, it's nuance. That's the thing about Pauline. She taught us about nuance. And she taught us that the nuance is the key to making quality work. It's not your fault that the audience isn't trained in nuance, but in a way that's your role is to introduce them to it. And as they start to listen to you, you're cultivating their listening practice. And now they're getting a front row lesson in nuance that maybe in a few years they'll start to understand, which is why she was able to exist with her career for such a long time. And I think why we all will be able to exist for a long time too. Um, yeah, so then when the four turntable thing started, I was like, okay, how can I do this where it won't be like a cacophony kind of mishmash? I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more elegant than that. And that's when I was like, well, let's play with Jordy. At least he'll, he'll be singular. You know, his musicality can kind of be a bedding for you if you feel a little lost. And sure enough, it was a very safe and comfortable space. And I don't want to be restricted anymore because I feel like my entire, before the brain surgery, BBS, <laughs> before brain surgery era was like, I was at the mercy of the moment. And that moment was always very, was full of scarcity and taking away and having to adapt to minimalization. And I'm just hoping in 2023 and onwards um, that I can, I can finally grow out of that and finally be able to create spaces for myself where I don't have to be in this survival mode of like adapting to the minimalism of this space that's bringing me there. I think I, I, I think I'm too old now for that. <laughs> I'm not a DIY kid anymore, you know? <laughs> The Broken Records was uh, in the very beginning as well. Um, it was really the needle, the Broken Needle was the first. And that was in my DJ days. And the boys hated me. They're just like, what are you doing? One guy wanted to take me out to lunch to tell me why everything I was doing was wrong. And then the records. And I was really inter intervening with them. I still have them, the very first ones I ever made with masking tape and I'm burning them and I'm scratching them all. It was like at the very end. And then like I got kicked out of the DJ scene and then I met these kids and then I started to do that more. And so when, when I started to work with the with the Pauline crew, then I started to make them and, and I still have them. Um, and I, I was also just following what I saw, you know, I was just mimicking what was around me. And I thought, I thought that's what you were supposed to do to be experimental. I thought that was a very Dada thing. And then I realized, oh no, you're not Dada, you're Flexus. And you don't need anything to interfere with this. You interfere with it. Time interferes with it. Life interferes with it. And you just let it happen. And it will show you what it needs, how it, how it wants to exist, whole or not, you know? And then that's when that kind of organic process started. And that was also, I mean, my entire career is completely informed on Pauline's nuance and organic process and, you know, pace and being calm and patient and safe. And, you know, I'm so grateful to it. I, I, I really, 
and Miss Erla. It's a workshop. I bring people up, people sit right next to me. We talk, people let yell at me in the middle of it. I let them. I played with a baby once in, um, in Vancouver, actually. A woman brought her nine month old. And in the middle of my set, she started going, ah. And I was like, and I looked up and I was like, don't shoot her. And then I kept playing and I was like, ah. And I found a record and went, ah. And she goes, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> so funny. And everyone was like trying not to laugh, but it was also like just really beautiful. Like she, the baby like knew, but didn't. You know, she was just being a baby, but she was responding. And she ended the piece beautifully. She like kind of like, when she was done, she like just sat down. You know, like, really, <laughs> okay, we're done. Great. Yeah, I played with a dog in Toronto. Yeah, I guess all Canada lets me play with everybody. I <laughs> no, everything is because it's not music, it's performance practice, and performance can be whatever it wants, you know. Pauline's approach was so ahead of its time that we're just now catching up to it. Revolutionary. Any kind of art movement that tried to separate roles of you know, identities and things like, I think she was the one that had the courage to say, you know what, just because you're not a musician doesn't mean you're not special. Everyone can do this. And so she was inclusive before inclusive was cool. And she was anti-capitalist because to share and be open to all of your practice and not keep any secrets is about as anti-capitalist as you can get because it's all about exploiting the unknown right or or what what's not accessible the scarcity exploiting the scarcity in order to gain and she has none of that and that deeply influenced me i played with scarcity in a different way because I didn't release albums. You had, the only way you could experience my work is if you came to a show. And my only solo album from 2004 is now worth $200 on Discogs. So capitalism still is doing what it, what it does best, you know, even if I try to like reframe my work. But I, I think it was heavily influenced by her. She, she didn't want to hold any secrets. There were no secrets here. And because of that, I mean, I, I see her deep listening practices, sonnet meditations. Those are ongoing performance pieces that are still at play today. It was a perpetual performance piece, but it was too conceptual and ahead of its time. I love this story that she told me um, where she was like in 89, 90, 91, she decided that she didn't want to teach anymore. 
She wanted to play. She needed to get out there and play. And she didn't really know what to do. So she thought about it. Then she said, I'm going to make a postcard with a picture of me saying Pauline Oliveros available for lectures, performances, installations, compositions, commissions. And I'm going to send it to everyone I know. What is that? That's social media. That's social media marketing today. And she was doing it 20 years before with, with the media that she had access to. If you think about that, like, she was really willing to step out of her own comfort zone for the sake of her creativity. And by doing that, by sharing her information with everyone, it gave her the bedding that she needed to continue to make the work and to show it. And because then she was able to tour, finally her work was starting to be in places where the accessibility probably wasn't as able to before. And and that just expanded the knowledge of, of her work, which then had people performing her work, which then had people getting certificates on her work, which then had people teaching her work, which then had students performing her work. And this just turns and turns and turns and turns and turns and lives forever. And so she figured out how to make a performance piece that is literally going to be performed for as long as music, sound, art, history is going to be taught. Tell me another piece that can live forever, that isn't a painting. Even painting can't. My whole thing, my, my greatest goal of my life is like, how can I make a sound installation that will last a thousand years? Bernard Leitner did it already, and Pauline did it, and maybe Robert Irwin. And I feel like that's when you really get to a place of artistry, where the work stands the test of time. But now we're in a different century where it's no longer objectness. It, it can be in the mind. It can be through communication. And I know there's something else too, so that, that's why I'm really focused on that, just as, a, as an artist in general, not even in sound or music or anything, just my philosophy and my interest and what drives me. And that all came from Pauline and this whole understanding of how her work is going to live forever. It's iconic. And to be anti-capitalist and anti-racist and be so ahead of its time and um, in this manner, I think, is going to be key to saving humanity in a lot of ways. I think the arts needs this kind of approach right now because it is getting so scary and murky and dangerous um, because money is infiltrating it in ways that are making it difficult and gatekeeperish and you know and it's not fair you know sound sound i chose sound because sound can be you can feel sound so even if you're hearing impaired you can still have some type of relationship with it you can't you can't hear or feel painting you can feel like the surface area of it but you can't absorb the color you know and 
so for me that to me that as a medium was the one that was the most accessible of all which is also a Pauline thing too is like accessibility on, on top of inclusivity like making it accessible to everyone so that everyone can try it and see where they are where they are within it but I think that's going to be the driving factor of this next part of my career absolute inclusivity in every venue when it's time to play again there's going to be a clause in my contract that your venue must be accessible to all bodies. I am now physically disabled and will be disabled for the rest of my life, whether or not people can see it. Like, there's a piece of Teflon that is literally saving my life right now. And that's lodged like right in the center of us. And so for me, it, once, I, once I made the announcement of everything, all of these people that had chronic illness, you know, disabled or something reached out and they're just like thank you for for sharing your experience you know it's so cool to see a successful artist have to like navigate this you know it gave them some hope that they could navigate it too which i wasn't even considering it would be something um and it just opened my eyes to um how how privileged and whitewashed and white biased and just able-bodied biased I was. But I didn't know because I, I was I was fine, you know. I I you just it's not just it's just not things you think about. And then once you <laughs> once you get this and everything scares you and you you know, everything loud is too painful and you know, then you realize, oh my God, what about the neurodivergent people? What about you know, those that with epilepsy that can't handle the strobe lights but aren't given a warning ahead of time when they go to a club that strobe lights will be in use. Like, what about the wheelchair access, like just to get from point A to point B? I just think ultimately, once your body is put in a compromising position where you don't feel safe anymore, and it's extreme trauma, whether it's through an accident or whether it's intentional to cure something, you just don't see the world in the same way anymore. And it's it's too bad that not enough people are taking it into consideration, especially now with the pandemic. And um, but I hope that the isolation, it's not going back to normal. It's adding an additive it's just what happens now so now when it's time to play every venue has to have a live stream access there has to be a way for everyone to be able to see this and um if if you can't do it i can't participate because i don't want to share my art history with organizations and venues that aren't taking um other uh, other people into account i i, I really want this next phase of my career. I want my art history to reflect that I, I chose to work with certain institutions because they stood in line with my morals and my expectations of what I, now that I'm in this position. But it's also with my practice, like accessibility and my practice accessibility and being able to see the work and accessibility and being able to hear it on the internet. Everything's free. You can see whatever you want. There's stuff for sale, but you know, it's probably uh, for free too. So it's like, it's just anti-capitalist. It's just like, take it all. It's just there. Have at it. Go in there. <laughs> <laughs>
here's a book. <laughs> Do it yourself. Yeah, and that's all Colleen. The reign of applause is many things. But now that I have my eight needles for turntables, I can do it live. Oh. Okay, we're, we're jumping ahead now, hold on. <laughs> now I'm getting all excited. Okay, so the reign of applause first started in Malmo in Sweden back in like 2000, what is that, 14, 13? 12? A long time ago. It was my response to theater spaces asking for installations because black box theater spaces have the chairs and the PA system and a stage. So it was always really hard to like try to think outside of that performance practice presentation. Everything had that stage frame and that audience frame. And even if you switched the roles where the audience was on the stage and the people were in the, it, it still had this energy to it of performance because it's a black box theater. So I was like, you know, 31, 32, like, how do I, how do I make an installation for a theater space? Like what, what is, I was just thinking about time and about how interesting it is that in every part of the world, depending on its access, of course, um, between 9 p.m. in the evening, pre-pandemic, of course, too, so let's interject that part. Um, between 9 p.m. and midnight, what is happening in almost every major city in the world? There's performance, a concert, an event. Something's happening. So within this hour, of this time frame, there's going to be clapping. And so... I started to envision the globe and like all these little moments of clapping everywhere, you know? And I was like, oh, how, did, how could I, huh, clapping? Well, I mean, in a, in a theater, clapping is the response after the act. So clapping, 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 okay. And then I was like, oh, multi-channel installation, have it be site-specific per theater. So every theater a month before I get there, records all of the applause from every event they have here at that space. They give it to me, and then I, I create it um, and make a multi-channel sound installation that's only applause. And ideally, it should be a 24-hour plus long installation where it just the applause just goes forever. And it just never ends. And then this was really, I mean, I've always been dealing with the brain. I don't know if you noticed that, like even from the very early on set time where I'm thinking about my presence changes the person's imagery of like what a performance is supposed to look like, then I'm sitting down, that's a new neural connection. Like I have all, like my work really isn't driven by a turntable, it's a tool within my practice, but my practice is really interested in neuroplasticity in relationship to psychology and reality. And so, now we're dealing with applause and the act of applause and it's a response to but it's also a tradition it's old 
it's something that we've been doing as humans. It's as, it's as ancient as mountains, you know, like to make this sound as a communicative tool of support, enjoyment, excitement. And then the way that I applied it is a form that I'm now starting to call hypermemory installation, where um, you layer one sample on itself or with other samples in a very dense um, configuration where there's like 80 playing at one time. Um, if you have one WAV file of one field recording and you multiply that and put 80 of the same track on itself, all of these little nuances within that recording are going to be amplified simply because of density. But it creates volume differently than you turning up the volume of just one track because um, the density makes the sound heavier and more ink. So this was a play on the density. And so I came up with the term hypermemory installation, hyper reflecting the density of the amount of samples being used whenever I'm working with these types of installations. Memory is reflective of field recording. So field recording is a containment of sound of regular life. And so this particular term can be used for any type of installation that deals exclusively with field recording. If you went out and made a field recording specifically for this project, you, and it's and it's a sound file that you have uh, densely created many times, where it's emitting in one space many times. Um, you could use this term, hypermemory installation, and then installation just reflects the presentation format of how it's shown. And as each theater, each city invited me to develop it, it really started to also change the vocabulary of applause itself and the different types of applause. So like I said, applause is solidarity when it's a, a, a political meeting or some kind of a gathering. Um, there's the applause of parents applauding their kids after a, a little performance and it's very like excited and happy and you know it's very light and you know, there's the applause of excitement like for a band that you like. There's um, the board applause of the staff members that have to be in a meeting um, and have to applaud after everyone introduces themselves. There's, there's, there's so much in the sound of applause itself. And then, of course, again, thinking about ancient history and how ancient the act of applause is. I really, I really just loved how it was able to adapt and still be a site-specific site piece. Um, but the content was technically the same thing, but it was always very different. So um, the last piece I made, the Reign of Applause, was for the Black Lives Matter movement for the Amplify Festival. And I chose to do it because John wanted me to be the last one of all of the submissions. And I was like, well, then we should be clapping for you because that was a long ass festival, you know? And so I was like, I'll do a Reign of Applause. Um, and I went to some Black Lives Matter uh, meetups here in my area that I could attend because I was still very fragile like physically so I couldn't really do a lot. I, I went to a couple of protests but I was in bed for days after. <laughs> but I'm glad I did it and um, and was able to record all of this applause and on my phone. It wasn't even anything fancy, it was just some waste moment when I was just whenever there was clapping I would just record, record, record. Anyway, there's just so many different roles that applause take on and now that I've had this uh, relationship with this piece for so long, it's really shown me so much more. It was so simple at first. It was like, what is the one sound I can utilize here as an installation for a theater? And then it just evolved into now informing how I make field recording installations that are exclusively utilizing field recording, but in dense manners.
And so it's technically the first type of marine installation that I've ever made. And now I could technically perform it on my turntable with my four turntable eight needle setup. I could have different records of applause and perform it live and have layers of applause and just do a durational performance and have that applause be recorded in that space and have it cut. And I think it would be amazing. But I also do Nature Walk. I did one for the University of Chicago and a Nature Walk live stream, the Gray Center, where I took a lot of folkways records of like nature. There was one of India, but that was more cities. I kind of messed up with that. I tried to keep like, and, and the ocean, so whales, any kind of wildlife environment. And I, I did that four turntables, eight needles, and I made a walk, a, a nature walk that will never exist. So like monsoon season with dawn at, in Pennsylvania, on top of India, on top of insects in Africa, you know, like that to me was like sort of almost virtual reality, but not really. And that's also hyper memory installation because those are all field recordings that I'm just playing back and layering. And the density of the eight needles is enough of the density to still re refer to it as a hyper memory installation. So it's exciting to now be able to actually perform them. And that's what I'm going to hope a lot of my performances will be when it's time to play again. But it all stemmed from the reign of applause and how, how I was supposed to define it and make sense of it in my career. Yeah, I think if you're not, if subtlety isn't your thing, then my work doesn't make sense. But if you like inside jokes, like, come see me. <laughs> I got a lot. All my work has to make me laugh.